but it's not really a well-known provision, but it could be better than an alternative being the company selling its assets. Because remember, under K6, you don't have to deal with company being liquidated or paying dividends or anything like that. And the only thing that's taxed is the post-CGT gains. So if there's pre-CGT gains there, they're still tax-free. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 333 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What happens if you have a pre-CGT company with pre-CGT assets, but then you start moving post-CGT assets into the company? Yes, that is a candidate for CGT event K6, but is this K6 already an issue now or later or only an issue if you ever sell the shares? This is the question Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will discuss with you in this episode. CGT event K6 is essentially an an integrity rule which looks at situations where you have pre-CGT shares or pre-CGT units, but the company or trust is essentially stuffed full of post-CGT assets. So the first question is, when do we need to think about CGT event K6? CGT event K6 is, I like to refer to it as a bit of a piggybacking CGT event. So CGT event K6 does ne- never happens on its own. It, it always requires another CGT event for CGT event K6 to happen. For example, if pre-CGT shares are sold, then CGT event A1 may occur, but CGT event K6 may also occur. Now, if the shares were pre-CGT, then any gain under CGT event A1 would be disregarded. But the point in time for assessing whether or not CGT event K6 happens is the point in time of the other CGT event. So you kind of only face the music when you sell the shares or you liquidate the company or do something about the shares. So you could basically empty out the company before you sell the shares. You could take all the post-CGT assets out before you sell the company. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's helpful to keep in the back of your mind what CGT event K6 is trying to do. CGT event K6 is trying to tax the unrealized gains on the post-CGT assets of the company or unit trust. So in a very, very simple example, Let's say I own pre-CGT shares in a company and the company has one asset, which is land bought in 1986. It was bought in 1986 for $50,000 and now let's say it's worth $5 million. Now, of course, the company could sell the land. However, the company would make a capital gain. It can't be disregarded. It's not a post, it's not a pre-CGT asset. So the company would make a capital gain and pay tax and then a dividend would need to occur and all that, all that. Alternatively, I as a shareholder could sell my shares in the company. 
Now, in that situation, I'm selling a pre-CGT asset being shares. So CGT event A1 may happen, and if it does, then any capital gain that I make is disregarded because I acquired my shares prior to 1985. However, I do need to deal with CGT event K6. And from an economic perspective, what K6 is getting at is the unrealized gain on the land. So it's almost as, as if the provision says, well, what capital gain would you make if the company sold the land instead of you selling the shares in the company? So for that reason, things that are not taxed by K6 are gains on pre-CGT assets of the entity itself and assets that are post-CGT that have cost base. So when the cost base is the same as the market value, then there's nothing to tax. There's nothing unrealized in the, in the entity itself. So those are the situations that K6 is getting at. So K6 only happens if I have another CGT event. K6 never happens on its own. So the question is, to what extent do I have to consider K6 before I sell the shares? But maybe we, maybe we first look at the 75-25 rule. So in some respects, CGT event K6 is rather generous. In It only applies in reasonably limited circumstances. It's somewhat similar to the rules the old uh, stamp duty rules regarding companies being landholders. And it's somewhat similar to the rules about where shares or units are taxable Australian property. So what it's getting at is it's looking at the underlying assets of the company or trust. And if a certain percentage of those assets meet the test, the threshold test, then, then potentially we're into the section. The section is a little bit funny because it uses words that are not as common in the CGT landscape. Essentially, what CGT event K6 is looking at is we need to look at the market value of the property of the company that was acquired post-1985. And then we need to compare that number to the net value of the company. And if the value of the post-CGT assets is more than 75% of that net value number, then we're potentially into CGT event K6. I think the section talks about property. And so the question is, what is property and how, to what extent is it different to capital asset? And then The, the next question is, we basically have a numerator and a denominator. And the question is, do only capital assets go into the numerator? And do all property, including non-capital assets, go into the denominator? So basically, how do I calculate this ratio? So perhaps the easiest point to start with is working out what the denominator is. So for those who haven't done maths in a while, the, the lower number, that is more simple than working out what the, what the top number is. So the denominator is the net value of the company or trust. So just to repeat, it's the net, net value of the company or trust. The term net value is defined. Uncontroversially, that refers to the sum of the market value of the assets 
less its liabilities. So it's a pretty standard definition of net value. So in other words, the point to note there is it does include liabilities. So it's the net value. So it's basically the market value of whatever the company is worth at the moment. It's basically that because it would include goodwill, correct? Would include goodwill and include any liabilities that the company has as well. Good. So you can't just take the balance sheet. You actually need to make a market valuation of all. Yeah, you basically need to ask yourself, what is the company worth, including goodwill? Yep. In terms of the numerator, you have, a, you have two different options here. Firstly, you look at the market value of the property. The property, not CGT asset, not asset. It says property of the company or trust. And you exclude trading stock from that, specifically mentioned. So you look at the market value of the property that's not trading stock that was acquired after 1985. Or alternatively, there's a second test which looks at interposed entity situations where the company itself might have pre-CGT shares in another subsidiary. And then you need to look through to that subsidiary and see what it has which gets incredibly complicated and there's a question mark whether the section even works or not. So let's just, we'll just keep to the simple example of the direct, the direct test. And so it's in the numerator, you have the market value of property that was acquired after 1985. So after the start of CGT, I think it was sometime in September, October, 1985. Yep, September. And it explicitly excludes trading stock. And that is good news. For example, when you do property development on income or when you do share trading on income or when you do anything basically as a business through this company, it basically doesn't affect you because whatever you hold in shares or work in progress would be inventory and hence wouldn't be included, correct? Because trading stock is basically inventory. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. So it's an assessment at the time and you need to assess whether or not if something is trading stock, then it's not included. Otherwise, then it's the market value of, of all other property. And so that would include cash. It would include accounts receivable, accounts payable, anything, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting that the term, use, the term used is property, not CGT asset. Uh, the concept of a CGT asset is incredibly broad. So the definition of a CGT asset brings in things that are not property, like um, equitable rights, for example. But this specifically is just limited to property. I, I think in most cases, it's probably not going to make any difference, but it's just worth highlighting that the term actually used is property, not, not CGT asset. But it would include intangible property. So goodwill, uh, intellectual property, for example. Yes, and goodwill is always assumed to be Pre-CGT, correct? If the company was set up pre-CGT, then also goodwill is assumed to be pre-CGT, correct? Not necessarily correct. It may be, and, and hopefully it will be. However, the ATO has quite a long ruling on whether or not goodwill is a pre-CGT asset or not. And the ruling is TR 1999-16. Essentially what it says, it's almost like the same business test for, for the purposes of losses. The ATO, in their opinion, consider that you need to look at what the business was that was running prior to 1985 and then compare that to the business that's being run now or after 1985. As a very short summary, the ATO allow for organic business growth 
but they do say that there are there may be situations where the previous business the, the, the goodwill has the business has changed so much that it can't be said to be the same goodwill that existed prior to 1985. Now, there's a whole debate on whether the ATO's views are correct in this ruling and have they got this right or not, but it's a ruling that's been around for 20 plus years now. So there can be situations where it's not the same goodwill anymore. So I think an analysis needs to be done with reference to that ruling on whether or not the goodwill still is pre-CGT or not. So let's just take another example. We've got shares in company A, which are pre-CGT assets. And let's say they're sold for $200. So at the time of sale, company A has the following assets. It's got goodwill, which is internally generated and is a pre-CGT asset with a market value of $100. Okay, so they are telling us here that it is a pre-CGT asset, but goodwill is not necessarily a pre-CGT asset. It you know it remains to be determined. But to make it simple, they are telling us here that it is pre-CGT. Yep. Let's assume in this scenario, it's 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 definitely no questions asked. It's definitely a pre-CGT asset and it's worth $100. We've got cash of $50. And that's always post-CGT? Which, well, yeah, it's a, it's a post-CGT asset. I guess you could have cash that was a pre-CGT asset, but it, it doesn't really make a difference. Trading stock of $50. Is excluded. Which would be excluded. Trade receivables of $100 as, as a post CGT asset and liabilities of $100. So in other words, we've got $300 of different types of assets being goodwill, cash, trading stock, and trade receivables. And we've got liabilities of $100. So firstly, have we got another CGT event? Yes. If there's a sale, let's CGT event A1 is probably going to apply. So tick on that. Next question, we need to look at Just before that other CGT event happened, what's the market value of the, the property of company A, excluding trading stock that was acquired after 1985? So the goodwill was pre, so we exclude that, and the trading stock is excluded. So we've got 150 as the figure for the, for the market value of the property acquired after 1985. Yes, cash $50 and trade receivables of $100. Why don't we deduct the $100 of liabilities? Well, that's a good question. Well, we, 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 at the, at the, for the numerator, we're just looking at the market value of property. So oh, I see. Okay. nothing to do with liabilities. When we look at the, the denominator, that's the net value. So essentially 300 minus 100 being your $200 figure. Okay, good. So we have post-CGT assets of... $150 being $50 of cash and trade receivables of $100. So we have $150 and then we look at the net value in the denominator and that is $200. So that means they hit exactly 75% and so hence the K6 applies because K6 starts with 75% or more. Yeah, correct. We've got $150 over $200, so 75% met. So K6 does happen. The next question is, okay, well, K6 happens. What, what, what does that mean? The next question is, well, is there a capital gain and, and what is that capital gain? Now, the explanation or the, the, the statement on how the capital gain is determined is in subsection six of the legislation. 
I'm not going to read it out word for word because it's incredibly technical and complicated. What it's getting at is you only make a capital gain based on whether or not there is post-CGT assets that themselves have capital gains. So in other words, we've got to look back at the company and look at its post-CGT assets and whether those post-CGT assets have unrealized capital gains. So in this example, what are the post-CGT assets? Well, there's cash and there's uh, accounts receivable. Do either of those assets have unrealized capital gains on them? No, because the market value is exactly their value. Correct. It's exactly their cost base. Yeah, so correct. So in this situation, CGT event K6 would happen, but there is no there is no capital gain because there are no gains on any, un, any post-CGT assets that have been unrealized. There's a gain on the goodwill, but the goodwill is a pre-CGT asset. So we're not concerned about that. Cash and accounts receivable count as a CGT asset? Yep. So the way, the way that the capital gain section of K6 works is, despite my promise that I wasn't going to repeat it, I will take bits of it out. You need to look at the following. So you need to look at what the capital proceeds you receive from the sale of the, the pre-CGT shares are. And then you have to work out how much of those capital gains are attributable, or I should say reasonably attributable, to those unrealized post-CGT asset gains. Incredibly difficult. One, assuming you've made got a view on whether or not that 75% test is met, it's then quite difficult to work out, well, how do you actually work out the capital gain? And the example I've given is a very simple one where I think everyone can say, no, there's no, there's no gain here. But it can get very complicated, particularly when you've got a, a chain of entities and you might have both this that direct 75% test and also the indirect 75% test met. How do you work out the gain in that scenario? But it also means even though cash is a CGT asset, you may never make a capital gain on cash. Hence, to avoid K6, you could liquidate all, all post-CGT assets and then just hold cash in the company. And hence, yes, you might trigger K6, but there is no capital gain because you basically realized the capital gain beforehand. Yeah, that's absolutely right. K6 is kind of limited in its scope that all K6 wants to do is tax the unrealized post-CGT assets. If the post-CGT assets have no capital gains because they've been converted to cash, and of course, tax has been paid at that point as well, then, then K6 doesn't have any further work to do or any work to do. Yeah, because, and that's also just the purpose of K6. K6 basically just aims at the unrealized gains. Yeah. And so if there is no unrealized gain, then K6 doesn't worry about anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and if you think this is a difficult piece of legislation, if you're bored and got nothing better to do, you can go back to look at the original CGT legislation draft in 1986, because it had a version of K6 as well. And it is incredibly uh, cumbersome to try to, to try to understand what is even going on in uh, the old version of K6. So th this is the this is the newly drafted or the, the, the modern version of it. And it's still quite difficult and technical to apply. 
It's a 75-25% ratio. The moment you hit 75% of post-CGT assets in relation to net value, you trigger K6. It's not necessarily a 75-25 ratio as well because you can have situations with quite a significant number of liabilities. You, you could come up with an example where the liabilities are very high. So the net value of the company is quite a low number. But the property acquired after 1985 is is higher than the net value. Your percentage isn't capped out at 100% is what I'm saying. Um, you, you could have a situation where it's more than 75% because it's 400% because they use different, they're assessing on different basises. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's been pointed out as sort of, a, well, this is a bit unfair, isn't it? That you're looking at different things. What about when you've got really large liabilities? Unfortunately, that's just the way it's drafted. That's a very good point, because, for example, you could have a property in there that's pre-CGT, then you start a business in the company that's post-CGT, and this business actually holds very little assets, but has massive liabilities, hence the net value of the company is quite low. And then the few post-CGT assets that you have, they might just be a few dollars, then make up more than 75% because the company is basically looking at a net value of close to nil. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So that means it doesn't matter if you exceed the 75% during the year or at year end, that doesn't matter. It's only at the point of just before the CGT event. Of sale. It covers other CGT events as well. It covers not only A1, but also um, notable ones C2, which is what happens on a liquidation. Also K3, which is what happens when... You give it to a charity or foreign resident. Or to a non-resident beneficiary, yeah. Yeah, the only one I could see that it doesn't happen to is it doesn't seem to happen on CGT event I1 or CGT event I2 happening for some reason. I don't know if that's an oversight. But I did see that that wasn't on the list. So what what is A2? Yeah, I1 is when an individual ceases residency of Australia. And I2 is when a trust ceases to be resident of Australia. So I would need to look at this in a little bit more detail. But uh, potentially, if you sort of cease your residency, you would now be, you wouldn't have a K3 um, happening. So you wouldn't have K6 happening because even though there's a CGT event at that time, it's not one of the ones listed in K6. Might not be covering I1 and I2 because you have another CGT event. When you move overseas, then your shares... But usually what happens with I2, usually at the point of I2, I1 is that those shares, either you pay tax on or they stay in the Australian CGT net. So if you choose well, I'll pay tax on it because it's pre-CGT anyway. <laughs> if K6 happens later on, you're, not, you're, not, you're a non-resident at the time and therefore disregarded anyway. Uh, yeah, you could, you could have s some sort of situation where maybe that's a way out of it. Might be a loophole. Potentially. But otherwise, yeah, it's, 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 you're looking at, uh, it doesn't matter if there's temporary uh, uh, breaches. It, it's really just about the time in which the other CGT event happens. Yes. And then also, if you have capital profits reserves from the sale of previous pre-CGT assets, they are not affected by K6, correct? Not, not themselves, um, but if those capital pro profits were used to purchase post-CGT assets, 
and now those post-CGT assets have gone up in value, then, then potentially you could have CGT event K6 happening because it's all about it's all about the post-CGT assets, basically, and whether or not there's capital gains on those. Yeah, no, fair point. But so if the company has pre-CGT assets, sells the pre-CGT assets, profit goes into the capital profit reserve, they trade in post-CGT assets, make profit, but then they sell everything. So in the end, there is just cash and capital profits reserves. And then the capital profits reserves are not at risk. You can liquidate the company. Yep. Yeah, you do Section 47 liquidation, liquidators payment. You can liquidate with massive amounts of cash in the company, correct? Yeah, yeah. Because that's how the, that's how the capital capital profits reserves are then distributed. Exactly, exactly. I mean, if you had to distribute all the cash beforehand, then you couldn't use the capital profits reserve. So the cash must stay in the company. Yeah. And then you liquidate the company, and then all the cash comes out as a capital distribution through the capital profits reserves. Correct. Yeah, yeah. There's basically three ways I think to get to get money out of a company that that, are, that I see sort of regularly. One is a dividend taxable under 44. The second is a liquidator's payment, which comes under Section 47, which is usually used where you've got pre-CGT assets or perhaps the active asset reduction applied to the company. Or, or there's another reason why it, it's sort of a capital profit reserve. Or you use the 15-year exemption under the small business concessions to get money out of the company. That, those are basically the three ways. You mean with 15-year exemption, you mean any small business CGT concession, correct? Or is it only the 15-year exemption? Only the 15-year or the retirement exemption. The ones that allow payments out of a company to, to shareholders without it being a, a dividend. You can get money out of a company by paying a wage. A dividend under Section 44, a liquidator's distribution under Section 47, which would cover all our capital profits reserves, and then the 15-year exemption and the retirement exemption. Yeah, correct, correct. When you do have a K6, you just have to proportionally split the uh, capital gain between pre-CGT and post-CGT. Correct. You look at the ratio between the net value and the CGT assets, and then that ratio you apply to the capital proceeds and work out your post-CGT capital gain on the whole thing. Yeah, I think the jury is out on exactly how to do that, but intuitively, yes, that's that's what you need to do. If you've got capital proceeds of $100 and there's an equal amount of gain on pre-CGT and post-CGT assets, so 50-50, then the capital gain you'd bring in would be $50 because it's basically half. It's, it's the bit that's attributable to the unrealized post-CGT gains. And then last question, have you ever seen somebody knowingly running into K6? I can imagine that everybody usually liquidates everything to avoid K6, or have you seen tax returns with K6 in them? I have dealt with tax returns with K6 in them. And was that an accident or was that willingly? Oh, I think it was somewhat, well, with with one of the situations, they, they knew in advance that K6 was going to possibly happen because they wanted to sort of a family succession thing, um, wanting to transfer shares within a group. And in the other situation, the client was selling pre-CGT shares in a business and they were under the impression that if the shares were pre-CGT, then it was going to be tax-free uh, on the sale. They hadn't heard of K6 at that point and 
it turned out K6 did apply, but the treatment was still better than if the company had sold its assets rather than the shareholders selling their shares. So I guess that's a situation where they've, they've run into it on purpose in a sort of roundabout way, but it's not really a well-known provision. So yeah, but it could be better than what an alternative being the company selling its, selling its assets. Because remember, under K6, you don't have to deal with company being liquidated or paying dividends or anything like that. And the only thing that's taxed is the post-CGT gains. So if there's pre-CGT gains there, they're still tax-free. Welcome back. So K6 never comes alone. It always comes in tow of another CGT event. For example, CGT event A1, when you sell or a different CGT event. Next Monday, in episode 334, let's talk with Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney and Adelaide about the subdivision of land. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.